Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by another special guest this week to talk about Games Magazine rivalries. So uh, Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi there. I'm Dan Dawkins. I guess I'm technically a veteran games journalist. Uh, I've worked in the industry for like literally over 20 years. And I began my career on a magazine called PSM2, the independent PlayStation magazine. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Dan. You're obviously like the, I think you are the most storied veteran we've had on this podcast so far. And um, on here, we like to do episodes that are themed around magazine discussion. And I, I did kind of pick this topic of games magazine rivalries, because when I first met you, you were working on PSM, and I was working on Play. And I feel like games magazine rivalries are a very specific sort of like well, they're kind of like an, I guess, like an old thing now. But like at the time, it felt like a very different thing to say website rivalries. So um, let's start with your your background, then, Dan. So you say you've been working in media for over twenty years. How did you get started? Well, it was weird. I guess in I, in college, I did not media. I studied um, economics and marketing, bizarrely, uh, which felt nothing like what I wanted. Uh, you know, maybe you know, I wanted to do journalism, but I was just you know, not putting myself forward to do it. So uh, after I'd left uh, uni, I went to work for, and I think this was like a Freudian step towards journalism, is I went to work for WH Smith News, which is the distribution division of WH Smith's. Sexy stuff. That, it, it was, you know, in many ways brilliant, because I think uh, like a lot of people, I left university with a delusion that at 21, I'd be the CEO of three businesses, you know, and... <laughs> Uh, like, like, you know, you do when you're a kid, you, you're led to believe your degree is some passport to, you know, uh, magical riches or something. Uh, and then the next thing you know, I'm, I'm working in this like tiny satellite industrial estate on the edges of Newport in South Wales. And I was working in the newspaper distribution group initially. And um, I'd have to go into like what they called the pack, which is where the guys would pack the newspapers and magazines overnight. And the the guy who was like the leader of that group was six foot seven. Now, if you know me, I'm not obviously not six foot seven. And I, and I, I remember like one night where something had gone wrong with the pack. I felt that that weird sort of post university need to over assert myself with this guy. So uh, I you know I, I was like, this can't happen again. You know, this could, this is unacceptable. Like a complete mo- like a complete moron. I was like twenty one, like a baby. And uh, a fair play, the, the, the guy who was a giant just laughed in my face. And, uh, and he said, uh, yeah, don't worry, it, it won't happen again. And, and just went off like rubbing his beard and laughing. Uh, so after like uh, about a year of that, I went on to some weird graduate program at Smith's where they sent me about the country, like uh, a bit like Alan Partridge, where uh, I went to work at like Leicester's WH Smith News, staying in the equivalent of like Linton Travel Lodge. Uh, and I, I, it was absolutely, I mean, it was, it was, it was good in many ways. Like it was a good uh, background, but you know, I, I was on like a 10 pound food budget a night. You know, if I was pushing the boat out, it put in an extra two quid for a travel lodge steak. Did it have to be food from WH Smith? Well, no, it'd be food at my travel lodge. And, and <laughs> it, you know, let's be clear, it was an abject misery. Um, <laughs> but what I was doing and what was part of it is something that got me through that time where I'd be sat on my own in Leicester's Linton Travel Lodge would be I take my PlayStation with me and and it was like then when I played a lot of the PlayStation classics like uh, Resident Evil I think Resident Evil 2 I played while I was working for WH Smiths but you know long story short I got absolutely fed up of that 
I quit. I went travelling for a year. Uh, and while I was travelling, I applied for a journalism degree at Cardiff University and um, didn't get in. So I'd, I'd given up on it and was living a hedonistic life in Australia. Uh, but then as it turned out, someone dropped out of the course. They offered me the place. Uh, the next thing you know, I'm coming back to Cardiff to study a one-year journalism course. And at the end of the course, somebody from Future Publishing was there uh, doing graduate recruitment. So... You know, I just fell over myself saying how much I'd love future mags and, you know, I was really excited about the PlayStation 2, that brand new technology. Uh, and from there, I got put onto the graduate scheme at Future and, like, ended up placed on a magazine called PSM2. Uh, and I was actually, at the time, devastated about that because I was a massive Edge magazine fanboy. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this has happened more than once with people who... Um you know, secretly just love Edge and wanted to end up on Edge. But um, is that what was your relationship with Mags then before you got that job? Yeah, I mean, obsessive. I used to read all of the Future magazines. Like, I was a fan of, you know, I had, well, it's not Future, but I used to have CVG, Mean Machines. I used to read Mega from Future. And I, I always remember they, right. they put little faces, like, to express what they thought of the game. You know, so rather hmm. than one to ten, it would be really pleased face. I'm ecstatic face. <laughs> Sad face, like clown face. Uh, and then I remember like when I went to see the people who'd worked on Mega, you know, when I went to Future, it was it was amazing. You were like, oh, my God, it's Andy Dyer. He's so cool. Uh, and, and, you know, they were, they were really dizzy times. But, you know, I was into all sort, you know, all magazines. I just like was really into magazine culture, the craft of it. And I studied like mag- magazine journalism at uni. And, you know, I just really loved the the fusion of journalism and I guess artistic design so those early days of PSM 2 then Dan am I right in thinking that Jedi Starfighter was the first game you reviewed I think I just found that on Twitter because your LinkedIn didn't go back that far so um yeah what what was your what was it like the early days of working that mag for you I don't know if my memory goes back that far so that's the the more (laughs) dangerous uh, issue here yeah actually so I joined PSM technically on issue one and that, for a lot of people, is a very famous issue because it's the one where we gave away the VHS cassette of the original MGS2 video, the one that did mm-hmm. the rounds at E3, and you know people were like worshiping, and you know it changed the way a lot of people looked at video games. But yeah, I, I was parachuted in right at the end of issue one. They'd clearly been through the hellmouth, uh, and I was introduced <laughs> to like my fellow staff writer Joel Snake, and Joel hadn't slept for quite honestly, 36 hours and was wearing some, like he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and like a jacket that looked like he'd just been in a fight with the Highlander, like this big leather jacket. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I really am. You know, this is not Kansas anymore. You know, I'm really somewhere else. Um, so they didn't let me do anything on issue one. They, they wouldn't. They, they, they were so deep in. They were like, there's no point you getting involved with anything. Just, you know, play some games, learn how to use our crappy word processor or whatever it was back then. And the very first thing they did was say, actually, we have got a gig for you. There's a press event on in two days. Uh, would you like to go? And I was like, hell to the yeah. Where are you going to send me? <laughs> and they went, well, good news. It's Newport. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so I've left Newport to go back to Newport. This, this is beyond belief. So, uh, yeah, so it was handy in a way. I got to stay with my mum and then we went to the, the nice hotel, the Celtic Manor. Uh, and that was, um, you know, it, well, you know, Activision in very different days. Right. And I think on, on that trip, I'd seen 
Jedi Starfighter or Jedi Star Wars Starfighter. And I think I previewed it. And I think that was the first thing I'd ever written in PSM. Mm. Wow, yeah, great stuff. So what was the games magazine landscape like when you joined then? Were you kind of like um, keeping an eye on your competitors or did you just have a bit of tunnel vision as you were kind of like trying to learn the craft of working on PSM? I think initially it was very blinkers on because I think you're finding your own feet and you know, you're intoxicated by, intoxicated by the thrill of being in this environment. Um, future publishing back in the early 2000s was in a quite small building above a fajita shop. So, you know, it stunk like Mexican food all the time. But every magazine, you know, quite uniquely had its own identity. So, and again, you know, Edge magazine, quite literally, and, I, you know, I hope they forgive me to saying this, it, it was like a soft jazz cafe uh, where... They had the light. They had the lights dimmed, and would, play, would literally play soft jazz. And and it was it was it was designed in a way that entering the zone was an intrusion. You know, it was like it was all walled off. And I'm pretty sure. And again, Tony, I love you. I'm so sorry. I'm pretty sure that Tony was sat there in the dark back end of the jazz cafe wearing shades. <laughs> Um, I might be misremembering. That sounds legit, because even when we had the open office plan, they had their lights dimmed in their end of the office. Yeah, it was definitely legit. <laughs> and, and you know, really, but that was cool, right? I thought it added to the uh, the affectation and mystique around Edge, <laughs> uh, even though it was preposterous <laughs> in many ways. Also really cool. So, yeah, sorry, Sam, to come back to the question itself. <laughs> um yeah, I, I was focusing in on my craft, really, I think, for the for, to begin with. But I think pretty soon, you could see through our editor, who was Marcus Hawkins at the time, you could see him, he was clearly eyes on the prize in terms of the wider market. And I think that's when we became exposed to what our rivals were doing, the exclusives they were getting, the craft and the things they were doing in the magazine. And before you know it, you know, the games industry is really small. And you end up going to these press trips, and it just become ultra competitive. And there's a lot of you know, crazy stuff went on, I guess, in, in service of rivalry, really. I'll, um, I'll definitely circle back to that because I've got a, um, a bunch of stuff I want to ask about when it comes to the MAG rivalry side. But I suppose just to talk a bit more about the PS2 itself, what was it like for you covering that era of games? Was it as exciting being in it as it seemed from the outside? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I've got to be completely clear about it. And I, I sometimes question myself that, is it just my age and nostalgia that makes me think PS2 was so good? But if you think of a console in terms of the sheer diversity and sort of thrilling unknown borders that that console had, it was amazing. You know, when, when I joined, actually, you know, most of the games were hands up, not very good. Like we didn't give out a 90% until I think issue three, mm. where mm. we had uh, one of the classic orange beta discs of SSX come in. Mm. And uh, I played that with, with Joel. And I think immediately we were like, holy wow, this is a completely different level to anything we've seen so far and like literally anything we played. So, yeah, that was the the very first PSM 90 game. Mm. But, you know, we'd had some absolute crud up to that point. I I think, you know, literally the best game until then was Fantavision, (laughs) the fireworks game, the fireworks game. Uh, And then we had games like Sky Surfer and we had a review from Frank O'Connor, who used to be on, I think, Ultimate Play the Game magazine. And mm. you know who Frank O'Connor is, right? Mr. Halo. Halo yeah. guy, right? Yeah, yeah the, ha- the Halo guy. Or as I know him, the guy who gave Sky Surfer 17%. <laughs> <laughs> I 
So there was wow. a lot. There was a lot of crap back then, but pretty pretty soon, you know, PS2 hit its stride, and yeah, just such an exciting time. And I think it was also an exciting time for like the UK development scene when a game like Time Splitters broke through, mm. and when we had the first preview disc of that in the office. That actually, you know, there's a lot of video game apocryphal stories about games like Pro Evolution Soccer, you know, driving these incredibly competitive lunchtime play fests, which are absolutely true. But predating that was Time Splitters. And, you know, we'd play that on, I guess, what, like a 26-inch CRT, <laughs> each staring at our tiny corner of the screen in blistering 480p. <laughs> but you, you, couldn't, you couldn't blink. If you blinked in that game... You died. And, and I remember, like, afternoons after playing that at lunch, I was, like, crying all afternoon. And not because I was sad, because it had been, like, clockwork orange. I didn't blink. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I look back now and go, good times. My God, my eyes were hurting. Was that, like, mainly... Were you just, like, playing with other people on the mag, or was there, like, intermag stuff? I think at that stage, people on the mag. So, you know, obviously mags were much bigger then, so you could raise a team of four people. Mm. So uh, it would be like me and Joel Duncan, who was the production editor. Uh, you know, Marcus, the editor, would jump in. And uh, I, I remember Effie, our designer, I think still works with me at Future. Yeah, we just play it. And then, you know, occasionally we, we go over to OPM and play as well, you know, official PlayStation 2 as it was then, and we play. But I, I think the true cross-magazine game rivalries didn't really literally kick off until the football games. Mm. So, Dan, like um, you definitely allude to something interesting there, which is the PS2 has a slow start. Do you remember the point at which it really kind of accelerates? Because in my head, it's like around 2001 when it's Gran Turismo 3 and GTA 3. But for you on the Max, was there a point where it just seemed to like take off and never stop? Yeah, and this is brilliant because it's opening loads of memories for me. I remember SSX was the kickoff, and then what felt like months and months passed... I remember my former flatmate, who was the, I think then the deputy editor of PlayStation 2 magazine. We used to like room, you know, room together and share a flat. He came home one night and said, I've got this game um, and it's like the game used to be in 2D and they've reinvented it. Uh, Do you want to come and look at it? I went, oh yeah, yeah, let's have a look. So, you know, you see the game. It's uh, a man gets out of a car, he drives the car and then there's music on the radio. And we're like, oh, my God, there's music that sounds like real music on the radio. And he's like, think that's good. Look at this. Swerves the car, runs a guy over. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, and of course, right, that's GTA 3. <laughs> that, you know, that was the first proper open world 3D console game. And I remember being sat there seeing this preview version. And you know what? I've got a confession. The guy who review, was reviewing it for the mag, he'd played quite a few hours of it, but it was one of these classic magazine deadline things where he played a lot of it, but didn't feel he played quite enough. But he had to make the call because the mag deadline was imminent. So he'd said, oh, God, Dan, what do you think? Like, I think maybe it's brilliant, but I'm not sure. <laughs> and then I'd said, completely glibly, looks a bit repetitive for me, looks more like an 8 out of 10. <laughs> and that's what it got, 8 out of 10. Uh. So I do remember, I remember that 8 out of 10 and thinking, wow, that's quite low for this game, (laughs) this game-changing game. I'm sorry, Rockstar, they might cut me off. (laughs) Also, the idea of um, GTA 3 just being on a disc that is sent and someone can take it home to their house before it's like properly out there, that's a completely different age, right? No no one could believe 
that Take Two or, or Rockstar had made that game. Like the previous Take Two game we'd reviewed was, in fact, this is a good story. Was Oni? Do you remember Oni? Mm, bungee game. A bungee game. And again, we were like, this Oni by this No Mark Studio is surprisingly good. Seventy three percent or whatever we gave it. Um, and then you know. Bungie have done all right for themselves. Um, went on to have quite a good career. But yeah, that was Take-Two's other big game, as I recall. Unless my, my memory's playing tricks. Um, we had no expectations. And GTA 3 was a real lights-on moment where I think people realised, you know, wow, this is actually legit. It, it feels like mm. those moments of like surprise and realisation are kind of quite hard to have now because everything's so sort of stage-managed and, and revealed at the same time to everyone. It, it doesn't, you know, I feel like it would be impossible for something to truly turn up out of the blue now like it probably could have back then a hundred percent you know i know this from my work this week like everything is just for probably correct reasons obscenely stage managed Mm. and marketed and subject to embargo on pain of death and and it wasn't like that Mm. then i mean i i remember quite vividly there was like one you know one lunchtime i come in had a sandwich came in and i was like where's everyone gone and I went over to one of the, you know, one of the other offices and it was an enormous throng of people around PC Gamer. And uh, Kieran Gillen, you know, famous now, you know, comic book writer Kieran Gillen was sat at his desk on his PC. And I was like trying to fight to get through to the crowd to say, what's he playing? And everyone said, oh, it's, um, it's a follow up to Half-Life. They've completely reinvented it. And that, there it was, Half-Life 2. Mm-hmm. And... The moment you saw the use of the gravity gun and throwing objects around with real physics, you know, people were like gasping. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, you know, seriously, it was like, we've never seen this before. And, and the, the electricity that creates in an office of like-minded yeah. people was, ama- was amazing, right? And, you know, the, the, you know, I guess there's two sides to that. One is that when was the last time you felt the same way about a game as you did the first time you saw Half-Life 2? Mm whether that's because we've all worked in magazines and games for quite a long time and we've become a bit more cynical. But and then to be in the environment where that could be a genuine bolt from mm, the blue. I'm so jealous. <laughs> just the maddest thing. I, you know, it wasn't me playing it, I was just watching it. But like, wow, you know, what a, what a game. What a game. So in the PS2 era, uh, Dan, what was like the biggest moment for you professionally? What was the thing you, you kind of got to do that really sort of blew your mind? It depends whether you mean in terms of the games we played or the press trips. I can't talk about a lot. I can't talk a lot about the press trips because I go to prison. It's not because of anything I, not because of anything I did, but it was just a different era, a different era of decadence. You know, for a football game, I got quite literally taken in a private helicopter to the top of a glacier, where the publisher in question had built a bar out of ice where they had a full service crew serving a champagne. <laughs> and an even bigger joke, we were only there half hour, because then we had to go back down the mountain to do a bungee jump. <laughs> a, bun- a bungee jump. It was just, it was just, just incredible. You know, and, and that, you know, other publishers had, you know, they put us in a hotel in, in Paris, and I was, you know, I was uh, fresh out of Newport. You know, I, I barely knew better than the beef eater. You know, I didn't know what a, a quality hotel was. Uh, they put us in a hotel in Paris called the Plaza Athene, which, you know, as it turns out, is only one of the most high-class restaurants in all of Paris. <laughs> and then, you know, here come a load of uh, scruffball games journalists in their, you know, £5 gap chinos and scruffy school bags. And then, you know, 
it was so posh you know that we got we went out one night and we'd all got drunk at the publisher's expense as was the way then and the next day i just wanted a greasy fry up but the closest they had to that was like a lightly beaten raw truffle steak <laughs> so i ate the steak and because i was still drunk and high on truffles i remember that night that that the afternoon i had to go back to my room to sleep and i thought i was communicating with my dead grandfather <laughs> That is not where I thought you were going with that. Oh. That's just that's just the press trips. You know, I mean, even in terms of in terms of the games, like again, I remember being told by my editor, "We need you to go to London today because for twenty four hours, Konami have a playable version of Metal Gear Solid Two in the country." So I was straight on a train up to you know, London to, well, not quite London, but to see Konami. And we got to spend four hours with that famous Metal Gear Solid 2 demo that, again, was like an epochal shift moment in terms of what we expected from what video games could deliver. Mm. And I had to go back to the mad, my brain bursting full of things, you know, like, oh, my God, this, you know, you hold your gun up and you can go into first person and you look up and the rain hits the screen. You can see the rain on the screen. Um, you can shoot the glass and the glass breaks. You shoot a melon and it pops. You shoot a guard, you can punch him in the trousers and he holds his trousers. <laughs> it's all this stuff. It was just, it was, you know, it's intoxicating. And then I had to go back and write this. They'd reserved six pages at the front of the mag to talk about it. And then brilliantly, I don't think we had a single screenshot. <laughs> I had six pages of the mag to fill. So I believe what we did, and I think this is the absolute beauty of magazines, no website would ever do this, ever, was I hand-drew from memory <laughs> the map, right. like the tanker, and various different things on the thing, and then using some ultra-generic press shots, we annotated this map, and to make it more fun, we did a photo shoot of me wearing a bandana, <laughs> Pulling those mega star faces, I was saying. So, like me going, oh, ah, wow. Um, yeah, just just something that wouldn't happen there. Like, really, really fun. That's amazing. So, Metal Gear is a big obsession for you, generally, Dan. Was MGS2 just a defining game for you in the early part of your career? Yeah, I think so. But initially, for not the reasons I would come to love it later on, I think initially it was more because technically, it was unlike any game we'd ever seen. And like I was just saying, the rain on the screen, the 3D visuals, mm. the cinematic sweep. It was pushing consoles in a direction we, we couldn't believe. And even the Harry Gregson Williams soundtrack and just felt so cinematic. So I think that was the reason I loved it. And actually, you know, that game's wild, right? There's a lot of things in that game that are utterly hatstand. Mm. And I also remember the day that Konami came in with the review code and the PR had said, whoever reviews it has to sign this thing called an NDA, which back then, you know, wasn't really a thing for games because he said, something happens early in the game that's going to make people explode. They will not believe what happens in this video game. <laughs> and none of us knew. It was just the inside circle of people who'd, who'd played it, who'd reviewed it. And they couldn't mention that in their reviews, as I recall. As you know, you know, one hour, two hours in, you, you play as Raiden. Who the hell is Raiden? What, you know, what's that all about? <laughs> what a game, you know. And as time went on, and I think the gaming community began to understand how incredibly ahead of the curve that game was thematically, 
it, I definitely became obsessed because it was a wormhole and it was falling into these Reddit communities of people who were obsessing and pouring over the, the conversations in it. And, you know, I won't, I won't go down my full Metal Gear rabbit hole because this, this will be the longest back page pod literally ever. <laughs> but you know, things that Metal Gear 2 did in terms of predicting the modern internet society and tribalism and the way information warfare works and more than that, how people exploit information warfare. And years later, you know, I, I've written about this and done bookazines about Metal Gear. And a guy who'd written a piece for us about the enemies of that game, or notionally the enemies, the Patriots, it talked about how they're, you know, not really an enemy, but saying they're, they are the system. And he was saying the optimum tactic for any system of control is stealth. Because the minute someone realises they're part of a system, they start to gamify it. And then it, it, it shone the light on how the Patriots really just created this ecosystem that people were part of that were completely oblivious to. And, you know, now we are we are aware of it, of course. But if you watch something on Netflix like The Social Dilemma, which, you know, you might have seen, talks about how social media has become utterly pervasive and changed the way we think. And maybe in ways that, you know, Facebook, Google, etc. didn't even entirely expect. But by creating a system gamified with algorithms that, reward certain things mm. it manipulated and manipulates today human behavior that was literally in metal gear solid 2 mm. 20 years ago it's quite a lot to put in a box out though isn't it <laughs> it's a hell of a lot it's and it's also you know the game's ridiculous right there's loads of nonsense in it but the core of what it predicted unbelievable mm. yeah absolutely so dan i kind of want to drag you i want to drag you forward to the ps3 era a little bit but i just wanted to ask because your stories have been so good is there any other kind of stray observations about the ps2 or Anything else you remember that you think is kind of worth mentioning? Because obviously that's a big chunk of time for you. No, it would just be lots more stories about press <laughs> trips that would become even more incriminating for me or other people. Did yeah. you get to meet any of like the big names from back in the day, like developer names? Like I know you've met Kojima a couple of times. I mean, did you get to meet anyone else kind of key or exciting? Do you know, I think I'd met some people who I just didn't realise who they were. Oh, right. Like, you know, oh, that's that really important person. Um, so, you know, I think I was a, a bit older when I met people like Phil Harrison. Mm. Uh, we went to TGS and we did some big thing in Japan. So we met like Kazunori Yamauchi, Kazurai, Phil Harrison, you know, all that Sony set. We're very good with the press at that mm. point. Mm. And, uh, you know, and even things like maybe he's not the most famous developer in the world, but is one of, you know, interesting and actually in real life, one of the most handsome and captivating uh, and enigmatic is Lorne Lanning who does the Oddworld oh, right. series. Mm, he's very good looking. Oh, he's so <laughs> handsome. He's so handsome. And like, this is 20 years ago. He was really handsome. Um, so I got put in by mistake by a not very good PR person in a one hour demo for the Oddworld game. And Lorne was, he was amazing. He sold it to me. It looked brilliant. It was like loads of emergent, exciting things happening. And I said, this is, a, this is brilliant. And what day does this come out on PS2? And Lorne said, oh, Oh, my God, this is an Xbox exclusive. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, oh. Uh, so and I, I just like, I used to like rattled and I just left the room. You know, I, I, I was like, what the hell have I done? I've just spent an hour looking at Oddworld. <laughs> but Lorne Lanning, this is amazing. Lorne Lanning ran out of the booth 25 to 30 metres shouting my name. And I thought, oh, I've, oh, my God, I've done something. I offended him. And he turned around and he went, thank you for your time, Dan. I just wanted to give you something. And he just popped in my hand a little um, Oddworld pin badge <laughs> that I've got to this day. So I thought that was the most 
wonderful, generous thing. Uh, and, you know, irrespective of video games or anything, I thought that was a brilliant way to treat people. That's mm. awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a good dude. Uh, so, Dan, obviously you become more senior. So by the time the PlayStation 3 rolls around, are you, you're editing PSM 3, right? I think at the very start of PS3, no. I think I was deputy editor. Mm. And then it was like later in the console's life cycle. Obviously, PS3 was a gift from heaven in many ways because Sony had utterly dominated you know, the PS2 landscape and then followed it up by releasing to the world this just enormous silver American fridge freezer. <laughs> enormous console. You know, it, we, and, and for, you know, as you know, you've, you've worked on magazines and everyone likes a last laugh page. What a gift that was. <laughs> you could just put, you know, Kazooie holding a console the size of like a small outboard building or something. <laughs> that was enough. And then the pad, the boomerang pad. What, what an absurdity. I mean, it, 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 ne- it never saw the light of day, did it? I don't think the, the mm. boomerang pad. Or I certainly never got to see one, I guess, as a, a proper release unit. But just an incredible machine. <laughs> and... I think it was around about that time. I might be getting confused with my consoles. Was PS3 the cell chip console? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I went to what I would describe as the most visionary and least intelligible press conference ever <laughs> with Kaz Hirai. And it was at TGS. And it was right before he... Not Kaz Hirai, Kazunori Yamauchi. Gran Turismo guy. No, Ken Kutaragi. <laughs> Third it. time's a charm. God, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting Sony, Sony fever. So Ken Kutaragi had given this amazing visionary talk. It was through a translator. And I think the translator had no idea how to translate what he was saying because it was so out there. And I was sat with some guys from like serious business publications like Forbes and Bloomberg. And I was turning to them going, is it just me? I just, I can't understand a word he's saying. And they were like, just, they were just like shrugging their shoulders. And he was planning out this vision for the cell chip. Like, the, the idea was the PS3 cell chip would live in every device in your house, including the fridge and the kettle. And the cell chips would speak to each other and form this grid of, you know, neural grid of processing intelligence. <laughs> it was way ahead of its time in terms of the way he was looking at it, but it definitely wasn't the PS3 that delivered it. And then he was also saying, what I'd like to do, look at Gran Turismo. Using the emerging technology of the internet, we would like users to take photographs of the world and we're going to rebuild the world in a computer on the internet. <laughs> and when he said that, and this is pre, probably pre-Google Maps, it was incredible. But didn't make any sense because it was so far out of left field from what we were expecting. <laughs> and I think there was a big sense of PS3 just being a console. They, they let Ken Kutaragi have his say and it was wild. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely defined everything that Sony's done since then, that kind of um, error. But as a as someone covering the console, did it was it kind of like a tough transition going from PS2 to PS3 in terms of the types of games? Did it make a difference to you sort of day to day that it was no longer the sort of like dominant force in the um, games industry? I don't think really because we we kind of hit the ground running where you know, our magazine PSM2 just became PSM3. A lot of the audience let with us, or you know we believe a lot of the audience let with us. And I think we what was nice. And this is the nice thing about magazines, isn't it? Is this sense of whether it's true or not, you feel like you're creating a club where there's a shared narrative. Mm. So I think we could create this sense of shared disbelief that Sony had created this thing. 
And it took, you know, it's at the point where I can't even remember the launch games. And mm. it was quite a while. And I remember, I remember when at the same time Xbox had launched. And Xbox was good. I mean, Xbox launched with Halo. Halo was amazing. And Halo was having the effect on people that Metal Gear Solid 2 was having before, or Half-Life 2 was having on PC. Halo was blowing people away. And Sony absolutely didn't have that at the early days of PS3. And, uh, and as I say, I, I'm struggling to remember like a, a PS3 launch game. Yeah, Motorstorm and Resistance were the main ones, Dan. Oh, well, yeah, and actually, you know, quite decent, right? Motorstorm, brilliant mud effects. <laughs> Resistance, a perfectly decent shooter. And by, and by the end of the generation, Resistance had become an excellent shooter by, you know, stealing all the best bits from all of the games of the generation. <laughs> uh, Riddick, Half-Life, you know, it fused it all together to make a really great single-player experience. But yeah. it took a long time for PS3 to to hit its stride, but... You know, when it did, again, another great console. Uh, so from there then, Dan, you kind of um, make a transition into video, right? Um, so what, what sort of happens in your career then? PSM eventually closed and I was put into the like dreaded projects division. <laughs> it was at the height of everyone believing that iPads were going to save magazines, which we can look back at now and laugh. And in fact, even then we looked at and laughed <laughs> because the... The mechanisms for creating and accessing iPad magazines were so Byzantine and so awful. You just knew. And you, you think today about all the obsession about smooth UX and making the user journey easy. This was the absolute enemy of that. It was just so hard. You had to download the host app and then download the host magazine and then post your issues into it. There were so many clicks and signups and... <laughs> You know, it wasn't, it just wasn't a good experience. So we, we were making this iPad magazine. We knew it was going to, fa- I mean, I knew it was going to fail. So what I'd started doing as a kind of, I guess, desperate side project was I'd had this bet that you could take what had worked in print. And in fact, at the tail end of PSM, I remember I wrote a, like a 10 page piece on Metal Gear Solid 5 four years before its release, which is just, you know, hilariously cliched of me to do that. <laughs> but I remember telling the guys on the team that was my plan. And, like, I remember people, like, getting angry and standing up and saying to me, like, you can't do this. You're going to be a laughing stock. It's going to be, like, humiliating. But I did it anyway. I guess I could. I was the editor. <laughs> but what we did, you know, or what I did was, like, you know, that's when I sat and looked through, like, years of Kojima tweets and did all this crazy deep dive assemblage piece of evidence and you know made a really good stab at what Metal Gear was become was going to become you know I said it was going to be open world it's going to be set in Africa the hero is going to be big boss most of this stuff was right you know and some things were really wrong of course you forget that stuff but taking this approach to journalism and then trying to apply that to video so the bet was can we do the same thing for GTA 5 so this was just at the point where Rockstar had said there will be a GTA 5 so I think we started the the show GTA Five O'clock as a YouTube series, like uh, like dipping our toe in the water, and then after about two or three episodes, the first trailer for GTA Five dropped, uh, and that was it. And we were just you know every week we we do a show, we'd analyse the latest trailer, we'd pour over microscopic details on the cars, on the guns, make all these wild predictions. You'd be working with Reddit, you know, you'd be taking all these clues from all over the world. And I think my employer, Future, didn't know we were doing it 
but by the time they did, it was too big to close down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think to this day, I still think it's the most successful video series in Future's history. I think. Mm. Uh, something, you know, it reached like 150 million people over two or three years. It, it felt like it yeah. kind of predated what is now a very common, like, approach or trend of the deep dive or the kind of companion, like, podcast, I guess, for, like, TV and film. You know, people just like to think about something. They doesn't have to necessarily have the facts. They just want... You know, it's fa- it's fans talking with other fans about what they want and hope and think, and that's now so commonplace. But it, it, at the time, it really didn't. Yeah, you're really right. There's barely a a big show that launches now where there isn't some kind of off the record or expanded show. Mm. Is there? It's so commonplace that the the nerd because the nerd market is now global. There's enough of us to make this stuff work. Mm. Where even back in this was what twenty. 12 2011 it still felt experimental mm. which is is weird to think now uh, very weird to think now and, and actually i was talking to i don't know if you, you know well, you obviously know steve burns yeah uh, who runs uh, special gun and um i was chatting to him the other day and he was saying oh you guys invented let's plays didn't you and i went what <laughs> like well, clearly not but then going back to the ps2 era the big thing of the PS2 era, and this is another conversation, was the the competitive nature of cover-mounted discs, mm. where we would put, you know, game videos on discs and say, hey, watch 50 new games on the PSN DVD. But what we decided to do was narrate over the game footage. And then we were doing reviews where we narrated over the game footage and uh, previews where we narrated over the game footage. And this was 2003? Mm. This is before this is before YouTube. Mm. Now I I can't claim credit for that. I think that was maybe our editor's idea at the time. But yeah, just unbel- oh, unbelievable I... thinking back. And these things are so commonplace. I was a huge fan of those DVDs. I mean, for, for for years, like it was weird. Like you know, I liked the mag, but I really liked the DVD and the you know. You guys I actually mentioned this to Andy Kelly when he was on the podcast, where it'd be kind of like big enthusiasm for the games you knew about, and then a room of of five dudes trying to sort of um and ah their way through like a you know the 10th guilty gear game that year um which always used to make me laugh but i could i remember like when i when i joined future hearing like your voices in the office oh my god it's the like it's the dvd guys because i couldn't i didn't i couldn't really put any voices to faces in the mag because again i made this joke when andy gelly was on here like it's it felt like Everyone on the team was called Dan at some point. Like there were there were several Dans, yeah. maybe a Dave. Um, so it was a bit of a sort of soup of D names. Um, but yeah, we had three, we had three 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 Dans for sure. It was me, Dan Griffiths, the editor, and Dan Vincent, the designer. So it was like triple yeah, Dan uh, but it was yeah that was like a big that was a bit of a a kind of eye opening moment of being in the office and being like oh it's oh it's them like I know, I sort of know these guys already. But it's exactly what you know. It's exactly how I felt when I first joined. I think that sense of meeting people who, who stuff you'd like noodled over and mm. yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's it's quite exciting. I saw so I was going to get really mad and philosophical about it, but I think for so many people, particularly when you're like a late teenager, you forget how important these obsessions can be for people. Mm. And I, I I think you know I found such solace in knowing there are people who are equally, I guess, like, demented about video games mm. as me. 
and here we go in YouTube and uh, you know and that's everything we do and it's all those shows we talked about but it definitely felt much more I guess underground then I guess so you know it wasn't underground we sold you know hundreds of thousands of magazines but it, it just didn't feel maybe as global or as mm. connected yeah great stuff well Dan look there's loads more I could ask you about your career but I feel like we're going to cover a bunch more in the next session so shall we take a quick break and then come back with some more uh, discussion of mag competition here <laughs> So, in this half, we're going to talk a bit about Games Magazine rivalries. Dan, when I first met you, it was 2008 on a Metal Gear Solid 4 review event trip. And you had this beautiful-looking Metal Gear Solid 4 cover with you that you were showing to the Konami reps there. And I worked on Play Magazine at the time. We were competing magazines, and I felt incredibly jealous. (laughs) Um, And I was curious if you could explain a bit about what mag rivalries were like and why they differ to sort of like website rivalries now. Why it felt a bit more personal and different. Yeah, wow. Can I say as well, Sam, I'm going to start by apologising to you. <laughs> Why? Because I remember, and I, hope, and I really hope you've forgotten this, so maybe I shouldn't bring it up. <laughs> At one of these industry parties, when I was, like, like many times, probably too drunk for my own good, I am sure you came up to me being super nice and really friendly. And we got chatting and you said... What do I think of Play Magazine? And here's an insight into the rivalry. And I said, I don't think anything about Play Magazine. <laughs> what an arsehole. I, I had actually forgotten that. Um, I got the strong sense that you weren't like that big on it. But I think that there was just a culture in the air of like competition between these mags that was like, you just got invested in whether you're a staff writer or an editor. It's a real thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we used to have There'd be beef internally, so there'd be a huge thing between <laughs> official PlayStation and PSM. And I think early years PSM, we got incredibly lucky with the, the composition of our team. So Joel, my fellow staff writer, Joel's a genius. Like Joel's ability to flatter you with copy, but to write it in such a simple way to make you feel like the genius, where it really it's his genius, you know, brevity of phrase. I, I thought that was absolutely wonderful. And our designer was probably our secret weapon, uh, a guy called Christian Day, uh, who went on now and he works with NASA and Adidas. <laughs> wow. So, you know, Chris is like, he was crazy good. You know, you, you described something terrible to him. So I'd be like, uh, I've been playing Gran Turismo and the, uh, this, this bend is like this and you can see light coming through the trees and how do we do it? And then he's like, right, I'm going to design these car dials and it's going to look like this. And it would just come back and you'd be, it'd be so flattering mm-hmm. to work with him. So I think there was that sense of like professional integrity rivalry, plus a massive fight over exclusives. Now, I remember PSW magazine. You probably remember PSW, Sam. Mm. Yeah. And we, we probably all know the various people who worked on these titles. And I, I definitely don't want to uh, talk about people or names. And, you know, looking back, I, I think very generously of, of almost everyone. Um, but they they took a much more, I guess, hands-on PR approach, where you know you'd hear stories of them, you know, meeting the PRs 
at 3 p.m. on a Friday to get them oiled up with lagers. <laughs> and then there'd be a, like an off the record exchange, a brown paper bag full of <laughs> full of discs. And there was one publisher who definitely shouldn't have been doing this, was clearly supplying PSW <laughs> with like plutonium grade exclusives. <laughs> And I think it was based on essentially getting drunk together and bonomy. Mm. <laughs> or, or maybe blackmail. Who knew? I find that very stressful as an editor because I don't think I'm that warmer personality. I couldn't take someone to the pub and like woo them just with my company. <laughs> I'd find that very stressful. Oh, Sam, you definitely could. And, and you've got that, that elusive thing we all search for, integrity. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that goes a long way. Oh, I'm not so sure. But um, so you... <laughs> When you were running PSM3 then, you had official PlayStation magazine, PSW and Play. For you as an editor, how difficult was it to secure exclusives when you had that much competition? Yeah, hard. So I think you knew certain things were never going to happen. For example, you knew it was always going to be tough to gazump the official PlayStation magazine to first-party Sony product. Mm. You just didn't really fight those battles. You, you try and negotiate a kind of B deal where you go, we preview it the month before they review it. And, and that was a strategy that would work then. So, you know, you, we'd work, the mags would work in tandem. Mm. Mm. But where, we, where we'd win is, I guess, with the third party publishers and the, I guess, the emerging publishers. So, <laughs> and I laugh as I think about it. So, like, we definitely had some hot Midway exclusives. <laughs> so, I, I think, I th- <laughs> you didn't read about Dr. Muto anywhere other than PSN2. <laughs> And I, I think the reality of it was, and Sam might know this, is you'd have to suck up uh, the odd Doctor Muto <laughs> in order to get in order to get a Mortal Kombat, or yeah. to get or to get a Stranglehold, which I think we were the first magazine to like lead on that that John Woo shooter oh, yeah. game, and that yeah. was a P- PS3 era. So someone like Midway we'd work with, and then the, the incident Sam refers to, the Konami cover, you know, I, I would say. Not ungenerously, that was probably six years in the making, where the stuff I talked about earlier, where, you know, going to see Konami and playing Metal Gear for the first time, Metal Gear Solid 2 for the first time, being so close to them with Pro Evolution Soccer. And the the mag as well was in a good spot, you know. I think our sales were competitive enough for us to be an option. And the stars aligned, and we had our 100th issue of PSM coming up. And it was around about the dates of the world's ever first review of Metal Gear Solid 4. Mm. And this was in Nasu in Japan. Now, I mean, I'd never been to Nasu in Japan. I'd never even heard of Nasu <laughs> in Japan. I've, I've probably bored you with the story down the pub. But, you know, we, we, so, you know, amazingly, the stars aligned. Konami said, yes, we can do an exclusive Metal Gear Solid 4. I can't remember if it's like a review or the final verdict or one of those crazy slices of coverage we cook yeah. up. But we, we were like, the I think, the only UK mag who went. And there was like 10 journalists worldwide. I tell a lie, I think maybe Edge were there, maybe. Mm. But it was very, very few people. And we, we get into Tokyo and they took us on a bullet train up to Nasu. Now, Nasu was where the... Japanese royal family live and and it's so far removed from the way Tokyo feels like the air is so clear it burns you (laughs) you feel like a you feel like a vampire seeing the light (laughs) it it was it was just 
beautiful. And then we drive and we're in, on these hills and the top of these hills and you look down, you can barely see anything. What you can see is a winding road, a series of wind turbines. And at the bottom of it, what is effectively like a Teletubbies house. <laughs> and it turns out this was like Konami's secret off-site training HQ. Wow. So we get, so this is where we get there. And then, you know, look, hey, it's Hideo Kojima. Um, it was all of his crew of the time. And it was this, it was like a sort of Metal Gear Solid 4 luxury buttons <laughs> where we got to play the game. 10 hours a day and then in the evening because no one could go anywhere right so Hideo Kojima was basically forced to eat with us oh. and to and to chat with us which is quite you know it was amazing it must have been incredibly awful for him <laughs> so there was one evening you could tell he was sat at one side of the table with his you know his work colleagues and they were chatting but it became increasingly obvious that everyone just wanted to hear him talk so one by one, the people along the length of the table kept hushing up and got cocking an ear towards what he was saying. <laughs> and I, I think he realised that the only way he was going to get any peace was to essentially hold court. So he <laughs> gathered everyone round and did this like, you know, half hour. I can't remember what it was about. He just chatted about the genesis of MGS4 and the various different things. And Konami's HQ was so plush and wild <laughs> The main briefing where they said you're here on this tactical mission to play Metal Gear 4 was delivered in a Bond villain style HQ with a circular table where the TV screens flipped up out of the central console. (laughs) It was unbelievably mad. Just the craziest thing. And then after being there a day or two, I was outside with someone. I think someone was smoking and I was chatting to them because I wanted to talk about what we thought of the game. And we looked up, and on the top of the Teletubbies house, there was a singular glass rectangle. And I was like, that is the weirdest thing. There's a singular glass rectangle on top of this building. <laughs> we go back into the house, and I was talking to like, one of the Konami reps. and said, why is there this glass rectangle there? And they said, oh, that is the president's of Konami's private viewing portal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow, uh, amazing <laughs> only he only he has the key to go upstairs to sit in the viewing theater. <laughs> wow i bet i bet kojima was so jealous <laughs> he was he was jealous this is the brilliant thing someone said mr kojima san even he's not allowed up there and you knew he was jealous <laughs> and a mere five years later he parted away with konami you know who knows <laughs> Who knows? If you just let me into the viewing platform, you bastards. <laughs> yeah, I would have stayed. I'd have finished Metal Gear Solid Five. <laughs> um, who, you know, who knows what went on there? But Konami is a much bigger company than we used to see. You know, we just see, uh, be involved with the game side of it. It's a massive corporation mm. that was involved in health and began with Pachinko and all these different things. I think that brought home that th- this is a huge company, and and this is the Japanese boardroom culture in excelsis. Mm. I've never, I've never seen anything like mm. it. Um, so that, that, that was one of the best, probably for me, the best press trip I've ever done because being able to play that game first and that game is hatchet. You know, Sam knows this, this game is wild, but what <laughs> a fun thing to experience for the first time. And it was also su- what was super fun. I'm sorry. I'm digressing again. No, one of ahead. the funniest, one of the funniest things about it was, because we played a not quite finished version 
the section, you know, the sort of Prague section where it starts where you you look like Young Snake, and it's like, oh my god, I'm Young Snake, mm. and he takes the mask off, and he's he's pursuing that guy whilst being pursued by those stupid balls, <laughs> and that section is a little bit boring. Mm. Yeah, and worst bit of the game. Yeah, worst bit of the game, and a touch tricky. Now, in the unoptimized version, there was nothing. You had no prompts, no clues. The idea of when you'd be seen and when you wouldn't felt completely arbitrary. It, it seemed to me stupid that the game would put you in the young snake mask, but then the way to play the game would be to immediately remove it and put your stealth camo on. Mm. It just felt stupid to me. And like nobody did that because we all thought we've got to play this section as young snake. Uh, that was that was some <laughs> couple of days. Some couple of days. So, Dan, like, um, going back to the mag stuff then, that was an amazing story, like one of the best stories I've ever heard in um, Game Reader. <laughs> but um, <laughs> do you think that heightened competition in, led to better magazines among the uh, PlayStation lot or just dirtier tactics? Clearly both. I think <laughs> y- we would do it internally where we get the new OPM in, we'd pour through it, and you- you'd love every page that was weak. <laughs> and every page that was good, you'd swear and say our oh, jammy you know bah, bah, bah. they were lucky to get that access that's not good craft all it, you know, we we were terrible losers right and then I, I think it worked both ways and you know maybe people wouldn't admit that or say it but i think that rivalry was great oh, yeah. because it would drive you to new heights and new creativity and you know probably even more so with external mags particularly when they got exclusives and it was just a crazy yeah. time just a really crazy you know, tip for tat time. I, I remember uh, like a really happy day on Endgamer when official Nintendo magazine had a um, <laughs> they had a they had a, they had a poster <laughs> for a, like a Zelda poster for a, for a Zelda special, and they'd obviously like made the logo themselves, and it had a it had a, it had a typo in it. I, I actually think it was a double whammy. I think it was. A phantom hourglass art, but the logo said Twilight Princess and Twilight was spelt wrong. And I remember us like literally fist pumping of like, yes, this is so yeah. good that this has gone wrong for them. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it was like. <laughs> yeah, and that's and what I also loved is before you told that story, you laughed to yourself because you remember how good it <laughs> felt for that to happen. And I, and I love that. I love that. And that's exactly how it was. And it's one of those things in the room. It felt like the loudest noise in the world. That you know, the universe barely moves. Yeah, an inch. right. No one cares. <laughs> we cared a lot, and I think that's what made it. That's what made it super fun. And I think for people who work in this in crazy industry, it's that creativity that's the best bit. I think mm, absolutely. So, as an editor, Dan, did you have like a, an ethos or a set of values about what the mag did or didn't do? How did you lay those out? When when the mag when I joined the mag. This is credit to Marcus Hawkins, the editor of the time. He had a very, very clear vision for what he wanted from the magazine. And we had like a brand facing tagline from day one. Um, and it was a little bit ooer matron, but the tagline was longer, harder, faster. <laughs> so uh, we definitely had some jokes about that. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds bad, right? But the ethos was nobody plays games more than PSM. And we're 100% hardcore. It was like an ultimate independent magazine manifesto about, you know, 
it, you know, it's not quite good fellas. Not like he hits us for the thing. We take a fat. It wasn't quite that, but it was, you know, it was definitely, we play it, lo- you know, we play it longer, we play it harder. We're going to do things you're never going to do. We're going to go deeper. And, and I think it was that mindset that stuck with me. And I think even when we were doing things like GTA five o'clock or the metal gear analysis stuff, it was just always about going that layer deeper into so- you know into something that's essentially ridiculous. Mm. But going deeper and playing, giving the ridiculous material the respect it deserves mm. and mm. playing it straight. And I think that's important. Now, when I was editor, you know, we used to do, our company would do this all the time. We'd have brand eyes, wouldn't we? Where we'd, we'd write the magazine's central message in the centre and the various different tangents would say different things. But I think, in, you know, in reality, that's a thing you write down and the, the way the mag is lived and received is how you walk the walk every day and... I think for me, it was just about integrity of the process and the writing. So like knowing the people we commissioned really knew their stuff, that their copy was gleaming. You know, we'd rewrite so much stuff. It's probably awful, really. But like nothing would make me angrier than giving someone something to review. Mm. And then you get it back. And the first two paragraphs are just pressure. Mm. There's no detail. There's no opinion. There's nothing exclusive. They just puff. And, and I get furious because I'm like, why have we paid someone to turn in this shit <laughs> that I, I can do a better job if I go on Google now and just pretend I played it? Right. Mm. That's like, that used to piss me off. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, then you, you, I think through that, and this is, I, I don't know, you know, if when you spoke to other journalists like Keza, if she said the same, but I think magazines were a crucible for writing talent. Yeah. Because... When you were forced on deadline, you know, you, you'd be exhausted. You'd worked a 10, 12 hour day or a week of 10, 12 hour days. And then your editor would say, one last thing. Can you just fill in? And, and Matt Castle will appreciate this. Like the dreaded roundup page. <laughs> and you'd be like, oh, shit. No, no. And you'd have to source and write 10 crappy previews <laughs> in 35 words each. And it would be living, living death. But I tell you what, if you want to own your craft, that's the equivalent of 10,000 hours Beatles playing German, right? right? Doing, those bo- doing those box out sections. You were good at writing because it had, to, it had to fit the page. It wasn't like the internet. It didn't keep going. Mm. You had to hit the word count. And I think that made, that made people good writers. And, and you, you could see then from people you commissioned... Uh, and, and this is a guy who, who probably doesn't need more praise, but absolutely deserves it. Uh, I remember when we had copy from Christian Donlan, and I think it was the first piece of copy where I couldn't delete a single word without losing something of value. Mm. Mm. And that's when you think, wow, you know, that's, you know, and I didn't necessarily agree with everything he said, but it all was constructed meticulously. And, th- and that is somebody who knows his craft. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, great stuff, Dan. So, um, do you, what do you think that magazines do well that websites still can't? Obviously, your content director and oversee all the you know most basically every bit of game stuff at Future that isn't PC Gamer now. So, what is it? Do you think that magazines still do well that websites can't really replicate? I think it's stuff we've touched on. I, I think it's a sense of club and community, and this sense of like we're part of the you know the PlayStation crew or the you know whatever it is whatever console you're affiliated to and it's definitely the design isn't it you know i think this sense of fusing words themes it's 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 more like 
marketing and more campaign led than the internet. So much of the internet is essentially machine and Google led and scientific. Magazines, you can craft narratives. And I think the very best editors have a vision and a story they want to tell. And mm. magazines allow you to do that and you can do it visually. Mm. And I think that could be even things like, you know, every summer we do our Hot 50 special. And it's a, land, it's a big moment for the readers because they're like, oh, what's this year's Hot 50? Mm. And I think that the boldest editors will have the ability to go from blank page to, here's the idea, it looks like this, it's designed like this, bum, 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 bum. You don't do it alone. You've got to bring people with you. And I think it's the other people involved that make it brilliant. Mm. You know, the designers and the other bits of contribution. But I think that's the thing that magazines do so well because they're collaborative, aren't they? And I think so much of what's done on the internet is solo mostly like certainly written articles mm. you know people use the tools they write the things on the page they file them in the cms it's gone the magazine page was like it's like you know real-time collaboration on a sculpture or something mm. you know you'd have many eyes and many people on a page and when you got that chemistry right amongst the team it was something special and i, and I think that's the magic of magazines great stuff dan well then just to close out then i i tasked you with giving us your five favorite playstation games ever kind of nice cross-section of your taste and you know to dig a little bit more into your memories of working on you know covering ps2 and ps3 so how do you find that process of um, making a little top five hellish <laughs> because you can, when you start thinking about it it gets worse doesn't it because you realize that actually there's been such a you know i've been doing this 20 years sam there's so many games <laughs> Um, it's it's absolutely shocking and I think what was also telling was that of the recent games hardly any have made my list Mm -hmm. that's not to say I don't think I've adored some recent games now obviously this isn't a Playstation game but I became obsessive with Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild like that would be in there if it was my all time favourite games but it's a Nintendo game so you know that's out of the Mm -hmm. running I, I think like Sony's recent God of War was mm. exceptional as a production piece. Uh, I also in, I also enjoyed Horizon Zero Dawn, but I didn't think maybe quite as magical as, as God of War was. But um, yeah, I can I can hit you up with my top five PlayStation yeah. games in reverse oh. order. Yeah, so kick, kick off. I could definitely debate the ordering of the five, four, and three, but I'm going to go with number five, Portal Two, Portal was brilliant but i think portal 2 is arguably one of the only perfect video games Mm. Uh, Mm. and by perfect i mean the intent of the game could not have been any more perfectly realized by the design Mm. there's no it's like i was saying about christian donnellan's writing there's no fat in that game everything has a reason and it's the design of the game intuits you towards really the only way you can complete it Mm. but yet it feels utterly organic and the great thing is because it is so designed and so cold and you know it's it's a robot controlling you it's it's intercut with this idea of you know rebellion and you finding these secret paths through this world you know and the fact it's so funny Mm. like Wheatley is so funny genuinely funny and there hadn't been many funny games until that point so for that reason, you know, 
it's one of my favourite all-time video games. Mm. Great pick, yeah, not something we talked about in this podcast before, but yeah, you've got basically J.K. Simmons and Stephen Merchant doing all of the heavy lifting of that story, <laughs> and um, the writing's just perfect. So, oh my god, was it J.K. Was it J.K. Simmons? Yeah, I think he's he's like the guy who runs the, the, uh, the corporation. Yeah, the kind of gruff one in the yeah. middle section where his name is. Yeah, god, holy it. smokes! Wow, 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 wow! So, what's your number four, Dan? Number four, after much pondering. Silent Hill 2. Mm. I'm sure yeah. this has been on the, the podcast many times. Uh, lots of people have said it in lots of different ways. Again, this is all about context. I think a lot of people who were really reverent of Silent Hill, but I remember when Silent Hill 2 came in on PSM and I got to review it, even at a technical level, it was astonishing. Simple things like when you stand in front of the mirror and your torchlight shines against the mirror, it just looks amazing. <laughs> but... You know, that story, those designs, you know, Pyramid Head, everything everyone would say, that is a haunting video game and like has stuck with me to this day. And actually it was an apps. One of the reasons I remember it is it was a joy to write about because the material was so strong. Mm. And that month I won Future's Golden Pen for review of the month <laughs> uh, for writing about science. <laughs> Uh, the highest possible honour. Was it sure. an actual pen? Uh, it was a real pen. Like, it was a real, moderately good pen. Like, probably a 20-quid oh. pen. Like, quite a good pen. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was, like, sucking beans out of a pipe or whatever at home with no money, <laughs> but at least I had the golden pen. So that was good. But, you know, it's a pleasure to write about. A game like that, what a joy to write about. Even if you played this game, like, as a punter, you probably had read about it before you played it. And one of the great pleasures of getting to write about games is that very pure first encounter when there's literally no expectation no one has spoiled no one can spoil it for you and that game must have been just like i mean epic discovering everything that it had yeah the flip side of that and we've all been there is when you're the first person in the world to play a game and you get stuck (laughs) yeah You're really stuck. And that, and, and that's where love can turn to hate quite quickly. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully, I managed to get through Silent Hill 2. Yeah, those apartments are pretty hard to navigate, um, get lost. And the hospital is as well. So, uh, yeah, that's a great pick, Dan. So what's your number three? Number three, I'm sure this has come up before, Ico. It's not come Again. up on this podcast yeah, yet, actually. But, you know. you're, you're, you're joking. You're joking. When Ico came out, it was unlike anything we'd seen because video games were video games and along comes this and i remember asking our editor i remember writing one of those infamous 50 word previews of it and i was saying to our editor what's this ico game and he went oh it's some weird japanese thing where you're a boy with horns who's stuck in a casket in a castle and (laughs) you wake up and i said oh it sounds absolutely awful (laughs) Uh, and then obviously next issue i get to review it yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not that crazy for this whole video games or art argument, but you've got to say there's something special about that game. And I think it was the bravery to break away from video game convention and to offer this essentially UX-free environment and narrative light, yet still emotionally rich experience mm. of a horned boy. And, and you know, it's, it's lived in the main mechanic is press the button to grip onto Yorda's hand mm. and it's quite annoying you have to whack sticks uh, whack ghosts with a stick <laughs> as I say it sounds terrible but there's 
there was there's something of that sense of discovery in that game and when you go from like the, the, the catacombs area and you first break out onto the roof of the castle for a game to give you so little in audio sensory terms apart from the sound of the breeze mm. that was a beautiful to see nature and for it to feel so slow and beautiful and you know look there's a lot of problems with that game but by the time you've reached the end heart-wrenching in fact i i you know i'm pretty sure i wrote some ridiculous poetry about it at the time but it's a game that's definitely stuck with me and you know as close as video games have come to feeling like art i i definitely remember listening to you you guys talk about this on the DVD and like it so wasn't a game for for that like vibe of like five blokes bantering in a room like I remember thinking like what the hell is this this is this doesn't fit with the rest of this stuff at all um not being dismissive of it but you know maybe you know I not really understanding it until I kind of played it for myself but I I really remember you guys talking about that particular game it's, it's a really good point you make because during this period in history, this was kind of like the Lad Mag era and like the era of Mega Bants. <laughs> you know, men were, men were more... You know, I know it's, like, it's not the olden days, but like, you know, men were men and it was all a bit more blokey. So the idea of us all sitting around in a group to discuss the artistic credentials of Ico... <laughs> this, uh, this kind of speaks to just the PS2 strength of just being an absolute juggernaut and having this like vast array of software that no one else could match. Um just yeah wonderful stuff uh so what's topped it uh dan what's number two for you number two and as i read it i feel like i've got to change it like i'm thinking of another game i want it to be is it star wars battlefront 2 i know you love that <laughs> oh no i've forgotten that completely sam oh god <laughs> uh, you know, was... I, don't, I don't think that's not one of my favorite games ever but i don't think i've played a game more <laughs> put it that I'm, way i remember you talking about it in the office a lot and i thought wow this game has formed like a big part of this dude's life you know <laughs> It re- I mean, it really has. I've, I've sunk like hundreds of hours into the seven out of ten Star Wars Battlefront two, <laughs> and, I, and I, I, you know, je ne regret rien. I, I, I love it. You know, it was, uh, it was a perfectly perfunctory experience. But number two, with a heavy heart, cause I, as I say, I'm thinking of another game. I'm going to say S S X, and I think I'm going to say S S X three. I was originally going to say S S X because I think. The impact that had more in, in terms of my life, I think when I first joined the magazine, the idea that it was the first 90% scoring game, mm. playing it in split screen with uh, Joel, like it was, it was associated with a lot of really good times. Mm. You know, and this is what I think I know, a lot of the best video games are, we associate, I think, with things that are a bit bigger than the game itself, you know, whether it's the people we played them with or the, the moment in our life that we engage with them. So I think there's a big sense of that with SSX. But if, I, if I'm true about the one I think is probably the best, maybe SSX 3, because purely because of the 20-minute mountain peak ride where you drop in in what feels like the surface of the moon while uh, poor Leno plays. And it's such a beautiful moment. I, I just love the SSX series. But all that said, as I said it, I felt like I was cheating on Skate 2. <laughs> so... That's another... It blows my mind that it took EA so long to bring that back. Because if you can think of a game that's better for, like, YouTube culture and Let's Plays and crazy physics, it just, it just isn't. That's perfect. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm obviously thrilled that returns. Uh, which takes us to number one. Go on, Dan, give us your number one. Well, you know what it is. It's Metal Gear Solid and quite clearly number three, which is, I would say... 
the best game of all time. Certainly my favourite game of all time. It's tied, I think, to what I was just referencing, the the way I played it. Mm. Mm. I, I was a huge Metal Gear Solid 2 fan, initially, as I said, for technical reasons. And I remember someone else, had, Paul Fitzpatrick, had been given Metal Gear Solid 3 as a freelance review. And at that time, Konami, it was, it, Metal Gear 3 was a very quick turnaround from 2. And there was this sense of Konami are rushing out a sequel to make money. Uh, it's in the jungle, it's in the 1960s, looks a bit weird, big tonal change again. And all that said, like Paul Fitzpatrick, we were talking to him and he said, yeah, I'm not sure either, I'm not really looking forward to it. Turns his copy in, absolutely gushing, 97%. <laughs> and I think it was the biggest score we'd ever given. And myself, the editor, everyone took it in turns to ring him and go, seriously though, 97%, you're having a laugh, you're having a laugh. But he stuck to his guns and he went, trust me, this is something else. So I, I had my copy and I took it home with me to my parents' house uh, over Christmas. So I was sat in my childhood bedroom um, and I'd started playing it. And um, on Christmas morning, I remember I was playing the bit where suddenly Metal Gear Solid 3 absolutely picks up. I think it's after you've, um, you fight Volgin, there's a chase uh, with, with the Rex. You know, it's the bit where it's like dum, 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 dum. It's nonstop good bit. And I remember it so vividly because I could not put the pad down because it was utterly breathtaking. And also because my mum kept shouting up the stairs, are you coming for dinner? Are you coming for dinner or what? Are you coming for dinner? And so I ended up going, when I went down, my dinner was like absolutely stone cold. But I, I couldn't put the pad down. And there's that, that's that section of three, two, three hour section. And it's as strong, like an album style composition of play styles as I think there's ever been. And it just keeps mixing it up and it keeps surprising you and it keeps pulling the rug from under your feet. And like, Kojima has tried and never bettered that sequence of events in the last few hours of MGS3 to the point where he's just parodied it and covered it, whether it's in uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 Act 2, which is like a, a cover version of the end of MGS3, mm. or even in Death Stranding's ending, where he does a very weak version of the same thing, but if you've never experienced it before, you might say, wow, that was great. But... Yeah, MGS3 is amazing. And, and again, MGS3, like I was saying earlier, a game that I didn't even like for about two hours because it doesn't explain itself. It's difficult, it's slow. And it was only when you discover how to use CQC and you can neutralise in an alert area, it utterly transforms the experience. And I remember years later going back to watch YouTube videos of guys who had mastered all the weird sub-things you can do, like the laying down of the gentlemen's magazines to distract the guards and then there are people who use like 20 gentlemen's magazines around a hq and were like systematically lining guards up and then punching them and they'd wake up and they'd get up and dance it was like synchronized dance <laughs> done through the medium of gentlemen's <laughs> magazines that's a video game. great stuff dan yeah I, I feel like mgs3 really won out from the fact that two and four were like the most hyped games of my early life i, I can't think of any other games that had the level of hype they did and three i think because it was a prequel just sort of seemed to arrive like you say and was maybe underestimated and yeah i i, I think that just does a lot for it being uncoupled from the continuity in that way you know yes yeah, so much and, and you're right so much of this is about expectations isn't it and 
to be able to experience a brilliant game or film or anything without the burden of those expectations is increasingly a rare gift. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's even at, with a run up and knowing Metal Gear 3 was good, I didn't know that much about it. So, you know, it was such a great experience. Well, great stuff, Dan. But thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Dan. It's been like amazing to hear your, you know, war stories. Yeah, so we um, really appreciate yeah, it. Really awesome stuff. We're, we're definitely going to have to get you back on in the future to, to talk more because, you know, all this stuff is this, is gold to me. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just message us when your wife and kids go away again for like a, a week and you've got a bit of time on your hands. So we'll um, we'll figure it out. Well, the good news is this podcast has been so long that people will still be listening to it in 2022 when I get some free time again. So uh, I, look, I look forward. If, you, if you'd be kind enough to invite me again, it would be a pleasure to talk. And it doesn't have to be about the olden days of PlayStation, even though it might be. Okay. Thanks so much, Dan. Um, for people at home, you can follow the podcast at Backpage Pod. Dan, are you um, at Dan Dawkins on Twitter? Uh, checks, yes, I am. Um, Matthew, where can people find you uh, on Twitter? Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.